We turn our hearts and minds now to God's word to us today. Our first reading is from the 145th Psalm, verses 5 through 10. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today and to the church. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. The might of your awesome deeds shall be proclaimed, and I will declare your greatness. They shall celebrate the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O God, and all your faithful shall bless you. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Isaiah, the 35th chapter, verses 1 to 10. Let's listen again for a word from God. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of the jackal shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler. Not even fools will go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The word of the Lord. I've got to say this is the first time I've ever had liturgically appropriate colored hair. So this is a first. Uh, but I'm excited to match the candles and to be here with y'all. Will you pray with me? Holy and precious God, we come into your presence this morning seeking a word from you 
seeking that in our lives that you give to us which sparks joy. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning's scripture finds us at a turning point in Isaiah. Isaiah as a book is sort of divided into two three-ish, but mostly two main parts. It's 1 to 33 and 34 to 66. And as one biblical scholar notes, the first half really addresses a period of punishment and anticipates a period of restoration, at which point God's sovereignty will be recognized throughout the world. Isaiah being a book that is written and prophesied to a group of people who have been taken from Jerusalem and are living in exile. Chapters 34 to 66, which is where we find our text today, sort of presupposes that a time of restoration is at hand, and the recognition of the Lord's sovereignty is here. Um, If you were thinking about how this actually plays out in Scripture, one good example might be that in Isaiah 2, which is a a book, a chapter that we think about a lot as uh, where we hear that God judging between nations and swords being beaten into plowshares and spears being beaten into pruning hooks. And there is this idea that in the days to come, nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. Looking forward. And then we have, in contrast, today's scripture, which says, among other things, here is your God. Here is your God in the now and lays out this vision of God's action and the creation's response. And it is a beautiful vision. Flowers are blooming in these vibrant purples. Cedar trees are spreading their branches and reaching for the skies. And cedar trees, these cedar trees, which is Lebanon, are some of the oldest trees in existence on our planet. They're 1,000 to 2,000 years old. There's water and wildlife that are abundant. The displaced and the dispossessed are returned to their homes. And there are bodies of all kinds singing and dancing and participating in the celebration of the presence of God. It's safe. It's peaceful. Everyone flourishes, and everyone has enough. It's no wonder the scripture is suffused with joy. And that does seem to be the word of the day. This morning, we lit the joy candle We've sung of rejoicing, of joy coming down, and it appears six times in our text this morning. Joy, joy, joy. We are joyful. But are we? Are you? What do we do with a text like this when the world we're living in right now can feel so far from its vision? When things feel less than vibrant, when the very things the scriptures claim as restored still appear broken and lacking. Isaiah describes a beautiful vision of the future, but the hard truth is we're not there yet, 
And for some of us, that's incredibly frustrating. Yes, Graham, God's reign is going to be amazing when it comes, but I need something now. I don't need someday. I don't need it's gonna happen. I need now. And honestly, fair. But if you'll bear with me for a moment, I would like to suggest this morning that it is especially in conditions like this that we need a vision like Isaiah's. Not because it immediately fixes everything, but because visions like Isaiah's help us identify the moments of inbreaking of joy in our own lives where the kingdom of God is present in the now. It tells us something about identifying joy in the moments when we need it the most. Speaking of joy in the now, one of my favorite theologians, the Reverend Dr. William, Willie James Jennings, has said, I look at joy as an act of resistance against despair and its forces. Joy in that regard is a work that can become a state, that can become a way of life. I might respectfully to Dr. Jennings amend that slightly for today to say joy as we experience it in the now is an act of resistance against despair and its forces that we are promised do not win. If we take Dr. Jennings' assertion seriously, we can use it as a lens then to help identify the aspects of joy in Isaiah's vision that reverberate from their fullness in the not yet into the foundations of now. There are three things I think we can learn about identifying joy out of today's scripture. Joy is transformative. Joy is embodied. And joy is communal. Joy is transformative. There is, in this text, as we read this morning, a kind of vision casting that's going on that Isaiah is telling the people about. And some biblical scholars talking about this text talk about it as kind of a second exodus. There are similar themes. There's a wilderness. There's a wandering. There's a desert that all mirror this community's first exodus story. And yet... In this second exodus, in these places of wandering, of lack, places where life struggles, they are suddenly filled with abundance, with joy, with life, not in brevity, but in fullness. Life that extends like the lives of the cedars of Lebanon, 1,000, 2,000 years. Life like lush forests and rich grasslands. We are being a, given a glimpse of promised joy, of what it looks like when people of God are restored and made whole, which is what we all want, isn't it? Wholeness, restoration, security, peace. But there's also a hint about the now, because if we look closely, you might notice that unlike the first exodus, there's no destination. There's no place anybody has to get to before joy can happen, before transformation happens. Transformation happens around the people. 
which means that joy is not dependent on some future set of conditions to be present. Every moment, every situation has the potential to be transformed by a God who can make anything possible, who is always doing a new thing. God is the God of every moment, not just some future utopia. So each new now could be a moment transformed by joy. Joy is also embodied. There's a lot of body in the middle of this text which I think is important because it suggests that joy is not simply an idea. Joy is an experience. It is something that happens in your body. And in similarly transformative ways, joy is a thing that happens where bodies are in motion. The scripture has a whole section dedicated to the ways that joy manifests in bodies. There are new visions, new ways of seeing that we could not possibly have imagined. There are new sounds, new registers, ways of understanding things that slap differently. There are new dances, new ways of being in our body and moving them. There are new songs, and there are new singers which joy encourages us to notice and become part of. Because embodiment with joy isn't only something that happens to us individually, but also to those around us, which brings us to that third element of joy, which is that joy is communal. Joy is something that happens when people are together. Unlike the happiness promised by, to the individual by the world of consumerism, joy is not the property of any one person. Joy is for all the people. Joy to the world. It is equally available to all of us, and it is something we experience together. We find joy in moments of reconnection, of restoration of togetherness. The future, Isaiah tells us, is one suffused with joy. Transformative joy, embodied joy, communal joy. And the good news of Advent is that even as we wait for that whole future, it is already here living among us. Perhaps this would be a good moment to tell you how this has showed up in my life. My second year of seminary, I was the president of a group called Div Out. Yes, it's a play on Devout. They're very proud of it. It's the LGBTQ student group on campus. And because I was a career and a halfer, having come into school later than many of my peers, and because I came of queer age in New York City, I had a distinct advantage, I realized, over some of them. For many of them, New Haven was the biggest city they had ever been to. But I knew better, 
and so I tried to paint them a picture. As we slogged through classes, picking apart our theologies, trying to understand the violences that had been done in God's name to us, the violences that in some cases were ongoing, I wrote them every week. I wrote of parties, of glitter, of light, of nights that went on forever that in a place that never slept, where bodies danced and music thumped and joy poured out of us like the sweat that mingled in our clothes. I shared music and poetry and reflections from those who had come before us, those people whose lives had perhaps been even harder, but who had also carved joy out of the rock of despair and kindled community, snatching togetherness from the jaws of loneliness. To be clear, that wasn't all I shared with them because all those things I just named did not come cheap. They were hard won. Sure, things were easier than they might have been for the people who came before us, but they were easier because those people had fought for that ease. And so it was not only their joy that we inherited, but also their vision, their work, their fight. Joy is a work that can become a state that can become a way of life. That sharp, glittering joy we understood was our birthright, but so was the responsibility to ease the way for those who came after us, to live lives in ways that cracked open the possibilities for what life could be. I couldn't make the past or the present anything other than what it was but I could write the vision plain for a different future. And the foundation of that future was joy. Joy that was already present because it was breaking into our lives. Today is Gaudete Sunday. And on Gaudete Sunday, we wear pink. I didn't know this before seminary, I can't promise you that I am a person who has paid deep attention to the liturgical colors, but Gaudete Sunday is one of only two Sundays in the whole year where the liturgical color is pink, which is the color of joy. And I think it's really interesting that it shows up in two of the hardest seasons. It shows up now when the world is dark and sunlight is scarce as we wait for the advent of new life. And it shows up again in Lent, when we're preparing for Christ's march to the cross, when death looms over us. In these moments, we find the church proclaims joy, which is kind of remarkable. So this morning, as we seek transformation, as we become aware of our bodies, as we worship in community, you are invited into joy. And if that feels hard, I want you to know it's okay. I was talking to a friend this week, and when I told her my Div Out story, she said to me, 
I just realized that I have been living in survival instead of living for joy. If it feels hard to live into joy, that is okay. Joy is communal. It is a thing that we are here together, lighting this dancing candle, sparking joy in a dark place. And there is someone here, if you can't hold it, who is here to hold that joy for you when your hands are weak, when your knees are feeble, when your heart is full of fear. Because the joy of God is not only in the not yet, but breaking into the now, and it is for all of us to transform every moment, to bring life, to bring joy, to bring peace. May it be so. Amen.